never before have we seen the value of having nurses so integrated into our teams. So the nurses from day one, we could have hand washing stations on the street, educating people what was COVID about. All of a sudden though, what happened for people living on the streets was their whole service system stopped. My name's Francis Lynch. Thanks for joining me on the Comments and Musings podcast. Today, I speak to Karen Walsh, AM, the CEO of MICA Projects in Queensland, and we talk about the impacts of COVID-19 on her organisation. Welcome, Karen. Thanks for joining me on the Comments and Musings podcast. I'm talking to leaders from a range of organisations in the community health and aged care sectors about how they've adapted to the impacts of COVID-19 in 2020. Um, we're recording this in September, so we're a few months in now. And, you know, organisations have made a lot of changes uh, about how they've done things. Um, before we get into that, can you just explain um, what MICA Projects is about? Uh, sure. Thanks, Francis. Um, MICA is a not-for-profit in Brisbane. <clears throat> we only have one service stream that um, is across the state, which is Lotus Place, which works with people who experienced abuse in institutional settings, including faith communities, out-of-home care. We have offices in Rocky and Townsville and Brisbane and outreach to the surrounding communities like the Gold Coast or Air or Cairns and Townsville. Um, Rockhampton, Thunderbird, Mackay. Um, the, the rest of our work is is Brisbane based, and it's the we're the regional service for domestic and family violence. So, leading around what is an integrated response? How can we improve the integration to make the experience of accessing a range of services the best it can be for women and children, so that they can access um, safety. Um, have their needs met, and that the men using the violence are accountable and have systems that hold them to account. Um, additionally, we have a young women's stream, young mothers for young women in Brisbane and Caboolture for teenage parents, and we work with that small and early intervention um, program that we also have had some occasional childcare um, for a year. That got a bit hit with COVID. Um, where we can provide childcare while women are going to legal appointments, psychological appointments or case management. Uh, we have several teams of people working across homelessness, which has probably been the greatest impact of uh, COVID in that we have an assertive outreach team that works on the streets, um, trying to get people into housing pathways. We have a... Um, community hub where people come for appointments or by phone or either preventing homelessness from occurring or the same, um, you know, needing assistance and that's often families, um, single women, um, not as many rough sleepers but some rough sleepers do not want to disclose where they're sleeping and they come to a hub. Um, we have a families team that's dedicated to working with homeless families or preventing and helping homeless families sustain their tenancy. We have a couple of NDIS connectors and we have uh, a health team and a health clinic that is trying to um, integrate healthcare 
reduce the inequality of access due to lifestyle or circumstances. And we have one with the Royal and one with the PA, which are our two main hospitals. They're slightly mm. different in their design, um, but we're also trying to maximise MBS billing through doctors, GPs being in the mix. Um, and we are the support provider for Brisbane Common Ground, partnering with Common Ground Queensland, the tenancy manager, which provides support of housing to 146 um, people. And we have yeah. a small program left that is, um, you know, the old hack with NDIS after NDIS transition, which um, is a community connections trying to get people connected in the community to activities uh, as well as some in-home help, but we don't have much money for the in-home help. And we have a social enterprise that is comprised of two cafes. Hmm. So it's really, it's quite a, a broad range and it, it sort of touches a range of different types of service delivery and, you know, some more health, some housing, family violence, you know, social enterprise, you know, housing and accommodation. So um, how has that been for you as an organisation in terms of actually adapting what you, you've needed to do to, to respond to COVID-19? Has it been sort of, uh, you know, being able to do it as one or has it just been a whole series of separate projects? No, it's been really um, interesting for us because we have, it has really enabled integration um, ah. and the fact that we've been able to do that with the exception, I'd say, of our early intervention services, which obviously are more focused on, uh, they've done some great work with FaceTime and Facebook and keeping in touch and phone. Importantly, they were able to keep open the antenatal clinic because it wasn't in a hospital. So young women's anxiety around um, antenatal care, people could still come, they just didn't have a COVID-safe plan. Um, and, you know, I think that was a really important thing that people didn't have to not have antenatal care or have it only through Skype. So for the early intervention services and the family support, it was very much... Um, phone, FaceTime, but also dropping things off at people's houses if they needed it, like formula. People were struggling with the same things that mainstream community were, but they didn't have the resources to go and fight for the formula in the um, shopping centre. So our workers went and it. And um, it was, it, yeah, so it was interesting just that sustaining contact with people. It was really important and um, as soon as people could gather again they really wanted to uh, because of the social isolation but with our with homelessness I mean as you know Francis homelessness is just such a mix mash of all our social service systems in yeah. some ways failing or not being coordinated and the vulnerability of people is incredibly high so their ability to navigate systems is very compromised but during COVID, of course, the systems closed down. So we really had to work out ways that we could take services to people. And, um, you know, we did have some new partnerships like uh, Chaplain Watch was an organisation that is, works four nights a week with the clubs, providing a safe place if people are intoxicated, not homeless people, just mainstream community. So they're yeah. a service. They didn't have any... They couldn't do their job, so they just came and worked with us for those three months, which was great. It doubled our capacity. 
we ended up with 1,200 people in hotels, um, which surprised everybody because, you know, we gradually saw rough sleeping get up to about 150 um, before the lockdown period. But then yeah. so many people were couch surfing and were asked to leave because of the restrictions yeah, yeah. in our So it made couch surfing visible. Um, but but what we saw was just such um, incredible amounts of unmet need, mental health, uh, drug and alcohol abuse. Um, you know, but we also saw amazing resilience. Like it probably was 150 people of the thousand. Um, who took up a lot of time and effort, but the others, people were so grateful, um, A, for the income they had. Um, yeah. They could actually live in a hotel room and get some food and, um, you know, not all of them had kitchenettes, so, but people could still work out a way to have food. Um, they had the money that enabled them to do that. They didn't have to rely on free charitable food and people actually enjoyed that. Um, people had money to get their medications if we could support them with yeah. how to. Um, but there are a lot of people who were incredibly disoriented, like they had lost contact with their services, lost contact. Some people left their family homes because they were worried they were going to not cope or be violent. Or um, And some people were resistant with their medication because they weren't in touch with their normal health practitioner who would be supporting them do that. Yeah, I yeah. suppose never before have we seen the value of having nurses so integrated into our teams. So the nurses from day one, we could have hand washing stations on the street, educating people what was COVID about. All of a sudden, though, what happened for people living on the streets was their whole service system stopped, food, washing. So we were the only outreach service that we didn't normally provide those things. So we, we, yeah. um, and we got our social enterprise to do sandwiches and small, you know, microwavable meals for a few weeks until some of that got sorted out. Um, and, you know, that was pretty amazing. People, When people could be useful, they felt a great sense of pride and would put extra energy and effort into making a difference. But at the same time, we had to manage making sure our staff were safe, making sure no one felt they were in a compromising position, giving people choices about whether, uh, you know, their role was was okay for them, depending on yeah. their living situation. Some people were anxious about, you know, they might have had a partner with an immunity issue or a, an aged parent that they were looking after. So I think yeah. that, you know, you were constantly problem solving and giving people uh, choices and, and people needed to make their own decisions about um, some of these things. But COVID did give us an environment where we could just say, yes, that, that can happen because um, our service agreements were anything you need to do to make it work and work, you know, you're not penalising staff if they have to have additional time off, um, need to yeah. be very firm about not coming to work if you're sick, making sure people had good time off. And and I mean Brisbane and, and Queensland hasn't had, you know, the second wave that Victoria is is finishing or is still experiencing. So um you know you've gone through that first period of, of adjustment. Um 
is it still really impacting your decision making now in terms of you know the prospects? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I think fear of community transmission is very real, and the messaging. You know, if you're feeling sick, get tested, and then then constantly as there's a case rising, it's well, these are the places this person went to. Did you go to those places? Do you know people in those suburbs? Like our staff live across Brisbane. So you're yeah. constantly monitoring and paying attention to it. Um, people are, you know, very cooperative around PPEs and, um, you know, we do have the luxury of still coming to work compared to Melbourne. Um, mm. So that means that you can do some things face-to-face. -face. It doesn't all have to be over um, the internet. And people, are, we're still providing face-to-face -face services. Um, so I think for us the issue is really a community wave. What does this mean if people are homeless again? Um, what yeah. strategy we've got for long-term housing? Um, how quickly is that going to come into play? And I think every, every issue like child protection, domestic violence, making sure women weren't located in a hotel near um, a respondent who had a DV order, because yeah. we were the service, because we had these streams of service, um, we could actually provide that. We could make sure that we had had different people in different places and were looking at the safety. I mean, we had 42 hotels at one time. So I think that, you know, we did learn the value that integration can play, but we know how difficult it is to have the funding that lets us do that. Um, yeah, the flexibility is really yeah. important. Yeah, and, and I think and more than ever, we saw our community service system have to be a community service system because the government services um, were in a bit like hospitals. Really, did not want anyone going there who didn't need to be there. Um, corrections were, you know, some people. There was a different approach to whether they were getting incarcerated or not. Or, you know, minor crimes. Um, yeah. So you really saw this change of um, dynamics. Um, but, you know, we, there are times when it was just felt like chaos and practice. So, um, so yeah. just managing that feeling even in some... And just, uh, you know, how risk... What risks levels people live with. Um, their safety is very compromised for a whole range of issues. And, and you mentioned staff before, and, you know, I think it's been a fairly universal experience of staff sometimes, you know, being concerned about are they going to contract the virus in their workplace and take it home? I mean, how, how big an issue was that for you and your staff group? And, and is that still there? Yes, it's always there. Um, I don't think we're, you know, I don't think at the moment homelessness, whilst homeless people experiencing homelessness have got quite significant numbers of those those um, indicators of age, culture, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or um, uh, chronic disease or, you know, health mm. conditions that would make them susceptible. We haven't seen that happen. We haven't had any transmission in the homeless population as such. Oh, that's great. But I think that with community transmission, that's a different issue um, because basically that creates this anxiety for people about, well, 
am I going to get it and how do I know I'm going to get it? Because in the very beginning, it was very clear, you know, have you been overseas? Do you have a temperature? Have you been in contact with somebody? As mm. those um, really, as the clarity around that changes and people don't have symptoms, I think a different level of anxiety comes up. So I think as an organisation, we just have to have that culture where you problem solve and listen to people and, and really, you know, if this is real for you, well, then what will we do and if it isn't? And, and sometimes it is about um, myth busting, right? There's a lot of myths about some things mm. as well, like what's a hot spot, what's a... Like there's a whole new language that we've all got <laughs> Exactly. And I think it's just tragic for people that are in circumstances of, you know, giving birth to children that are removed, um, losing their children during this time to child protection, not being able to have contact, um, yeah. not being able to access the services, just all things that are real pre prior to this environment. But this makes it a little bit harder because you're dealing with so many other unknown factors. And it sort of magnifies the impact for a lot of people. Yes, and I think it's really important for us that we keep things going that are hopeful and that we keep, yeah. um, you know, so, you know, that if there's events that we're going to be organised, is there a way those events can happen on Zoom and how can we get people to use their phone? And how can we have small gatherings but multiple numbers of them? Yeah. Um, yeah. Particularly around anyone who's been advocating for change, you know, that we just don't drop that off. Um, so that, like I know, we've been working with parents in the child protection system. Mm. It was really important to keep it going so they could contribute um, mm. what they what they were experiencing, and and that just the whole world doesn't come to a standstill. But you know, as you know, it really did, does show up the digital divide, and um, we have a lot of people that are you know just excluded on the grounds of digital access affordability, you know, so it's yeah, really yeah. fragmented and interrupted. People have it for one month, not the next month. One week they might be able to have credit, the next week they don't. So yeah. I think, you know, we've, we've been thinking, well, how can we be a little bit more um, conscious of this and what can we do to break that divide? Um, but we don't have the answers. You know, we've given away quite a few iPads, <laughs> bought seven yeah. iPads and given them away so people stay in touch but I think that there's there's a lot of lessons that we've been talking about for a long time and there's some new lessons so and, I, I, I wonder whether you've had the chance to start looking forward around some of that and and what you think you know might oh, definitely. Be the, We're the, sort of, well you know our focus is that housing and healthcare are intricately related homelessness um you know, is a public health issue in itself. Too many people die because they are on the streets too long, they have premature deaths. Um, you know, it's not something that affects the whole population, but it affects a significant their sons and daughters and brothers and sisters of other people and lots of families, um, particularly, you know, the rates of disproportionate number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from across every, whether it's early intervention or, or crisis. Um, you know, the, the number of women were more visible and the, the violence against women in all its forms, not just domestic violence, was pretty visible in the hotels. 
um, whereas normally that's not as visible. So I think, you know, really addressing mm. some of those issues of complex trauma for women, um, you know, it reminded me we can't forget about women's health and what are the issues other than domestic violence that really impact on the quality of life of women um, and children. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's lots of things that we are thinking about for the future, like including keeping some of the digital stuff alive. Um, but mostly we want to push forward with we need permanent housing solutions as a matter, as a health issue. Um, yeah. And and we need we need governments to actually look at this issue of integration of our responses. Um, and it doesn't mean that government controls it all and everybody does everything the same. It means that we've got much, much easier ways to be flexible and allow each other in and out of service delivery. But we've got to take treatment to people. We can't have a health system that has the poor relying on access to services through hospitals. They really need um, a sort of outreach to them. We know the cost benefit of that. Um, we, we need treatment. We don't just need to be in the position of psychosocial support. We actually need some NGOs to be funded to uh, have the professionals that can deliver treatment and not just have everybody on this referral pathway um, because some some people are just so stuck in in being referred on to everybody all the time when it's, really it's like that's the job done is you've made a referral yeah yeah and yeah. I think we've got to be very mindful that these systems don't work that we need to take services to people rather than say people are service resistant or non-compliant um, so I think the role of outreach, like we, we are primarily an outreach service and yeah. I think, you know, during COVID we realised, you know, wow, it's so important to be an outreach service um, and what would we do if we weren't? <laughs> um, so yeah. it was sort of like um, so many of the systems we had in place um, needed to certainly be reviewed and everyone needed training on infection control and all those things. Um, but I think yeah, we've really got to look at a more holistic way of supporting people who have multiple needs and are very vulnerable. And also just supporting people who just need a little bit of support. Like so many people we met were literally homeless because of COVID. They had lost their job. They weren't on job seeker. Mm -hmm. But with yeah. a little bit of support and a little bit of navigation, once they got their income, once they had the ability to problem solve themselves, they were fine. They didn't need to be um, supported and letting them know that this is where you can go for, you know, psychological health care, getting people to use their GP practice, you know. And people were really grateful for those tips, you know. But they yeah. don't need ongoing support. So we, we just need to be mindful that it's not one size fits all, which sometimes I think, scares people because they don't think it's going to cost too much money but it's costing a lot of money anyway it's either costing law and order or corrections or someone it's costing money um that's right it's just not it's just not reflected in in the way that decisions are made a lot of the time so it's yeah. not servicing people and society the best way we could be 
Yeah. Look, um, I, I, I can. It's, it's been really helpful to get an insight into what you've been doing at Mica over these last few months. Um, you know, my my knowledge and experience of your services up there in in Brisbane are that you know your experience of these last three months and the value of being on the ground and being able to provide integrated services. You know, whether it's bringing the nurses in or still being able to you know support people face to face when a lot of services weren't able to do that. You know, I think um, you know. It, it sounds as though that experience has really been able to reflect in a, in a great way of being able to support people during this time. I really hope that, you know, those lessons are, are noticed um, and that there's an opportunity, you know, for continuing, you know, that sort of integration as, as we move forward. So, look, thank you, uh, Karen, so much for being able to tell us a little bit about that experience. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Francis.